You are listening to Locally Sourced Science. Your connection to the scientific discoveries happening in the Finger Lakes community. I'm Esther Rakusin, and you're listening to Locally Sourced Science. This is our last show of the calendar year, and also our Best of 2020 edition. Yes, finally, we are nearing the conclusion of the year 2020. Certainly, this year felt much longer than all of the previous three years of Locally Sourced Science. Of course, you know why. Well, first, it was the year of the presidential election that just seemed to go on and on. Then, the COVID-19 outbreak traveled all around the world and impacted everyone's lives. And it was also a year in which we saw very extreme weather events. But tonight, it's the evening after the winter solstice and the great conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn. So for this year's Best Of show, let's start out by replaying an interview about how to spend time outdoors just observing nature. We'll have a lot of time this winter to get outside, enjoy the snow, and get a breath of fresh air. In April of this year, I spoke with Lori Rubin, a local former elementary school teacher who developed a curriculum using nature study to inspire students to develop their writing and science skills. First, I asked Rubin how she benefits from being outside in nature. For me, it's my um, my meditation space, my um, my getaway, and yeah, I think you can connect to the natural world in different ways depending on what you're used to. It could simply be for the exercise and breathing nice, clean, fresh air. You can just take in the general scenery of of what you're looking at, or you can get into more nitty gritty detail of really what I always call making friends in the natural world, learning uh, the names, especially the plants, but also the animals, um, especially birds that you come across. And um, so for me, when I'm hiking and I come across a plant or a bird that I already know, it just feels great, makes me feel good and makes me smile. Here, Ruben talks about the idea of keeping a journal to help connect to the natural world. The one thing that I really like to do, I didn't do it today, but, um, and what I've encouraged families with children to do is to keep a nature journal. It's something that I did with my students. And so as the weather gets nicer, we can, you know, go out and sit. Um, It's great for, for any family or individual to find a spot that's close to their home that's not hard to get to and revisit that spot over and over again um, with a journal and just sit quietly for a bit and observe what's going on around you and write it down. Um, You know, you could write a poem, you could draw a picture, um, you could just make a list of what you see, but 
for me, that has really made me connect more fully to the natural world and what's around me. I then asked Ruben to describe how she taught her kids how to keep a nature journal. The first thing would be very simple. Let's just go out and see what we find. And um, we can either draw it or, like I said, draw or write a list. Not, a, not all kids or all adults feel comfortable drawing. Um, but first, just, you know, ob- observations. What do we see? And then the second one, I always said, notice what questions are popping into your mind. And that's not easy for everybody, whether you're a kid or an adult. Um, and it, it just takes time. It takes time to, uh, to nurture that idea. Um, so, you know, a simple example would be in the fall, for example, um, you know, the colors of the changing colors of the tree are beautiful. That would be an observation. The question might be, why are they changing? How are they changing? Um, so it, it's, you know, I used to tell my students, it's that naturalists are kind of scientists and scientists walk around the world asking questions. And um, in a lot of ways, I learned that from my partner, who's a scientist, because when I took walks with him, that's what he would be doing. And so I slowly learned to do it myself. Ruben says that in order to journal, people should just find a so-called sit spot, which is a place where one can be quiet and observe nature. When I used to take my students out, um, sometimes, often I would have a particular lesson that I, you know, if it was the beginning of spring, we'd be looking for signs of spring. But sometimes we just went out and it was just to see what we would find. So when I first started doing this and I was going to the same sit spot over and over again, um, at first I wasn't sure what to do either, but kind of what happens is you start noticing things. You notice one grasshopper in the in the grass and all of a sudden you see three of them or you notice uh, a flower that wasn't there from the the time you were there before this happens all the time um, especially in the Mulholland wildflower gorge I'll see one new uh, spring ephemeral flower and then all of a sudden I look out a little further and there's a whole blanket of them so uh, just looking around you you know just a three foot uh, diameter around you can yield a lot of surprising um, finds. Even though the wildflowers and grasshopper eggs are sleeping under the snow, you can still go out and find a sit spot. Just put on your snowsuit, gather your fingerless gloves and journal and observe in the snow. Later in the year, we heard from scientists from a diversity of backgrounds. Some of these scientists, such as Dr. Ana Maria Porras, a postdoctoral fellow in the Cornell College of Engineering, not only does research but also participates in outreach activities to promote science to underserved populations. Last summer, locally sourced science contributor, graduate student Smaranda Sandhu, spoke to Dr. Porras about her science communication activities. This interview also aired on Smaranda's podcast, Tidbits of Research. Here, Smaranda asked Dr. Porras how she started the Instagram post, hashtag MicroMondays. Let's talk about hashtag MicroMonday. Basically, on your Instagram account, every Monday you post a picture of a new microbe you have crocheted and the story about said microbe. 
How did you decide that this was a means for you to like make your research more accessible? That's a great question. So the first part of the idea, which is using crocheted art, so in most often in my case, microbes, to talk about science, really arose from a festival that I attended, the USA National Science and Engineering Festival, with other people at Cornell who also do microbiome research. And we were just brainstorming ways to attract kids to our booth. And so then that was just kind of my idea. And I don't think anyone, including myself, expected anything special to come out of it. But then like, it really did work to attract the kids to our booth. And the other volunteers also used them to explain some microbiology concepts. Dr. Porras later started hashtag Micromartes as a Spanish language Instagram site to share knowledge about microbes to a scientific community that she felt was underserved. But yeah, my my Spanish account started, um, I remember specifically, because I was already doing Microbe Mondays for maybe a month, maybe a little longer before I started the account in Spanish. And I specifically remember that one of my cousins said that she loved what I was doing, but that she couldn't understand it. Like she wished she could understand it. And so then I started looking up Psychom accounts in Spanish and I couldn't even find 10 compared to in the United States. Like now there are way more than 10, but when I was looking, there really weren't. And compared to the US where we already had two years ago, hundreds of science communication accounts. Smaranda also asked Dr. Porras about her role as an American Association for the Advancement of Science, If Then Ambassador. If Then program basically brings together 125 women from science, technology, engineering, and mathematics to serve as high-profile role models for middle school girls. What kinds of activities have you been involved with as an ambassador, and have you had to rethink any due to the current situation? Those are both great questions. So as If Then Ambassadors... We do a lot of stuff, not only related to middle school uh, girls, but the, the general idea is to increase the representation of women in STEM in a variety of different ways. And so there's been a ton of different things. Let me think. There's so many that I I should sit down and write them down <laughs> sometime. Um, well, first of all, the really cool, cool part is that there are 125 of us from all sorts of backgrounds and all sorts of types of careers. So there was a summit in a last October where we all were there together, getting to know each other. So that in itself was really enriching. Um, But since then, I've also, especially with COVID, I've done a lot of virtual engagements with classrooms around the U.S. and with children who are doing like summer camp at home. Um, And then the other thing that's really cool is that there is the Ibsen collection. And so this Ibsen collection has thousands of pictures and videos of women doing science and engineering and math and technology, et cetera, um, completely free, available for teachers, for anyone who needs like pictures of women in STEM. And so I'm super excited about that. Dr. Porras also emphasized how she hopes that the scientific community will come to value scientists, not just for their research, but also for the time that they take to be scientific ambassadors for underrepresented minorities and young students interested in science. But I think if we really want all, not just science, but any field that you're in to be just equitable, inclusive, diverse, all of those things, right? We need to stop thinking of these things as extra and think of them as being all of these initiatives, all of these efforts as being 
directly linked and intrinsically important for the type of work that we do. What I wish would happen more is that one, other people would do this work more than maybe the rest of us would be asked to do it a little less. Right. And also I wish it was recognized formally in things like fellowship applications, uh, promotions for tenure, decisions on whether you should graduate or not. And then it wouldn't be a burden at all, right? It would just be like one other thing you're doing as part of your job. Throughout the year, we have continued to present research by BIPOC scientists. In July, Dr. Scarlett Lee, a veterinarian who is doing PhD research in immunology, spoke with Dr. Avery August. He is a Howard Hughes Medical Institute professor of immunology at the Cornell University College of Veterinary Medicine. Dr. August is also vice provost for academic affairs at Cornell. First off, Dr. August described the research that his laboratory group is focused on. We study, in essence, how do T cells decide how they're going to respond in immune, in, during an immune response. So T cells can either respond and become inflammatory and make what are called inflammatory cytokines, and that's really important for clearing certain bacterial infections or viral infections. But in the context of autoimmune disease, that can lead to pathology and, and autoimmune disease. And so they also have to turn off their immune, the immune response. So they have to make what are called anti-inflammatory cytokines. And those cytokines actually act to turn off the immune system. And so the immune response is a balance between being turned on and making inflammatory cytokines and being turned off and making anti-inflammatory cytokines. In, in most cases. And so what we study is what is the molecular basis for that decision that cells will make. Here, Dr. August talks about how he decided to also begin to work as vice provost for academic affairs. As my career has evolved, as I've been promoted from assistant professor, starting to getting, you know, setting up my lab, to being tenured, to being a full professor, I've progressively taken on other roles in, in areas that I thought were really important. And, and so those areas tend to be more administratively focused. I started off leading small teams of other faculty members and pulling together collaborative research. And then I became the director of a center that did collaborative research. And then I became a chair of a department here at Cornell uh, in, the, in the vet college, um, sort of leading, leading that department. And more recently, I'm now the vice provost of academic affairs, among other administrative roles. And each role has been progressively increased and focuses on bigger and bigger things. So, you know, as a faculty member, I sort of pulled faculty together. As a chair, you know, you have you lead the department and now as vice provost, I, I sort of lead and, and oversee a number of initiatives that have institutional impact. And for me, the important thing is trying to do something to make a difference for wherever institution I'm in. And so I've gradually done those things. And so what are you most excited about for the future of your research or your job and administration now? So on, on the research side, uh, you know, the, the thing that really excites me is we're starting to get a, an understanding of why the immune system responds in the way it does. And in getting that understanding, we're able to reveal potential targets for either therapy or manipulation that could allow us to manipulate the immune system so we can actually dictate how the immune system will respond depending on whether it's a virus, a bacteria, a fungi, or during autoimmune disease. And one of the things that I'm really hopeful for 
is that over the years, some of our discoveries have been taken up by companies who have now developed potential compounds that can target some of these pathways. My hope is one day that there will be some drugs that come out of, uh, or some approaches for therapeutics that come out of our research. I will say that that has already happened uh, in part in, in one area where there's a, a drug on the market called mepolizumab, which targets eosinophils during allergic asthma. And we did some work uh, earlier on to try to understand that process. And of course, there are many people who contribute to these findings. You know, I'm, I'm pleased that some of our work at least uh, went towards the understanding of allergic asthma that allowed the companies to be able to develop those approaches. Um, so that's on the research side. On the administrative side, I'm really hopeful about having institutional impact um, on the diversity of our faculty, on some of the initiatives that we have to address the climate here at Cornell, both in the institution and our department. And also uh, in terms of uh, making faculty more successful here at Cornell when we recruit them and in terms of retaining and in terms of enhancing their careers. So these are all the things that I'm really excited about in the future. And now, here is my co-host, locally sourced science contributor, Mark Sharvari. Thank you, Esther. What a year this was. This is Mark Sharvari for Locally Sourced Science, and I will continue today's episode by giving you little sound bites from more previous episodes of this year. And of course, if you like these sound bites, you can always go to locallysourcedscience.org and listen to them, or go to your favorite podcatcher and find these episodes and all the previous episodes on them. You should also follow us on Twitter at FLX Science Radio to get fresh updates. And again, if you're interested in podcasting, don't hesitate to reach out to us. We are always looking for volunteers. You don't need to have scientific training to participate in scientific research. Public participation in scientific research and contribution to scientific discoveries is called citizen science. We dedicated episode 92 at the beginning of August to citizen science. So now you are going to hear from our contributor, Liz Mahood. Hello, locally sourced science listeners. My name is Liz Mahood, and today I'm going to be talking to Nathaniel Launer from the Community Science Institute about their citizen science programs. Citizen science is at the heart of the Community Science Institute's efforts to monitor the water quality of the lakes, rivers, streams, and watersheds in the Finger Lakes and Southern Tier regions. Nathaniel is the Community Science Institute's outreach coordinator and a trained conservation biologist, and he's the go-to person for local government officials and community members to learn about the water quality in their region. I spoke with Nathaniel about how the Community Science Institute facilitates citizen science and how their programs have been affected by the pandemic. So the Community Science Institute is a nonprofit in Ithaca, New York, and our mission is to partner with communities to protect water. And so we achieve that mission um, through our four volunteer monitoring programs, our synoptic stream monitoring program, our red flag monitoring program, our biological monitoring program, and our harmful algal bloom monitoring program. 
And for each of these programs, we recruit and we train and we coordinate volunteers really across central New York region uh, to go out and monitor water quality and local conditions on streams and lakes, and also to collect samples uh, for analysis here at our state certified water testing lab. And what we're trying to make people aware of is that all of this data that we collect and that we have collected, you know, over the past 15 years in some cases, uh, we make publicly available on our water quality database. Um, and you can find that database on our website. If you would like to learn more about the Community Science Institute or become a citizen scientist yourself, head to their website at www.communityscience.org. I'm Liz Mahood, and you're listening to Locally Sourced Science. This year had many scientific discoveries, and of course the latest one towards the end of the year is the vaccine. The vaccine that was developed for COVID-19. But with COVID-19 on everybody's mind, very often we wonder, what about our pets? What about our cat, our dog, our hamster? Can they get COVID-19? So in episode 100, Candice Limpert interviewed Dr. Alison Stout, who's a veterinarian and who's researching feline coronaviruses. Our lab has been very focused, obviously, on the new coronavirus. So my research specifically, I have a project collaborating with a veterinarian in New York City to look at seroprevalence uh, to SARS-CoV-2 in cats. And so we know that cats are susceptible to the virus, but we don't know so much at the moment in the population. And so every so often we'll see cases that keep popping up or animals that have tested positive owned animals. And so we've been collaborating with a vet where there is actually a lot of the hospitals that back in March and April were seeing COVID patients. And so the veterinarian we're working with also has a lot of clientele that are doctors, nurses that would have been working on the front lines. And so kind of to understand in what would we would essentially consider a pretty high risk population, what their pets might look like and specifically their cats. So you said you're looking for a zero positive. What does that mean? So we are not actually looking for virus itself. We're looking for essentially a previous exposure. So after infected to the virus, body will mount an immune response, and then we can look and try and find that immune response to see how many animals have been exposed. So similar to we see all the news reports of looking at how long do humans have antibody responses, how long do those last, those same questions kind of apply to cats as well. How long do those antibody responses last? And so that's a second component of our research at the moment. So the symptoms in cats, is it the same as in humans? In a number of the cases that have been reported in animals, it's a described as a respiratory disease. So coughing, sneezing, nasal discharge, similar to that. Um, I was just wondering if there's a vaccine for cats already. There's been some recent interest also in developing a vaccine for cats. 
for a number of reasons. One, that we do know they are infected. So I think they could be a potential model for human vaccines um, and for preclinical testing. Um, and then the other kind of considering if we need to keep the virus out of, you know, additional animal populations, not saying that there would be a reservoir in cats by any means, but, you know, something to be thinking about. We had a really proud moment this December. We reached our 100th episode. And all of us who have been contributing to locally sourced science, we feel really privileged of living in this area of the world where there are so much science is being produced. You look at all the universities around us, all the colleges, and all the scientific discoveries that are coming out of these wonderful places. And we always love to hear contributions from students who attend to these colleges. And one of these contributions that you're going to hear is from Rosemary Gloss from the beginning of March with episode 81. And again, if you like this set of sound bites of these episodes, go to locallysourcedscience.org or go to one of your favorite podcast applications and download these episodes. Trust me. You can just never have enough locally sourced science in your life. When I first came to Cornell as a student, I worked in a place that few students have heard of and even fewer have visited, the herbarium. The herbarium is a collection of preserved plant specimens used for scientific study, kind of like a big plant library. And boy, is it big. Here at Cornell, we have an herbarium that contains over 860,000 specimens from all over the world. As the months passed, I realized that what some people might misunderstand as just a bunch of old dead stuff is actually a highly dynamic and growing scientific resource. To learn more about the value, scope, and impact of natural history collections at Cornell, I sat down with Dr. Chelsea Specht, a scientist who has interacted with them for her entire career. We started by talking about some of the challenges that they face. The challenges are kind of the challenges that have been with collections since probably the beginning of time in that they take space, they're dead, and people think, well, why do we need to fill up space with dead things? When you're thinking about buildings and infrastructure and classroom space versus laboratory space versus storage space, we really run into a lot of the same problems that libraries run into, where you're like, well, do we need to have all of these stacks of books when, in fact, we could just put it into a computer? There's still so many reasons why we need to physically interrogate specimens on a regular basis. There's also the challenges of maintaining them close to students, so students have access. You can't just put collections in a warehouse in some place that's maybe cheaper to have that type of storage space because then your students lose the ability to interact with them and then you lose the ability as a professor to engage students with collections which is really how you infect them with the passion for working with them. <laughs> I'm definitely infected. <laughs> yes you're one of our infectees so it's, it's great and, and I think understanding that you need to be in those collections and smelling them and touching them and interacting with them is really really important and to the same sense we can't just put them all at the New York Botanical Garden or at the Missouri Botanical Garden because while they do have some student access, it doesn't have the breadth of reaching students that a university setting has. There is a great movement to digitize herbaria and other natural history collections, and it is a great movement Mm -hmm. in part because we get to see so much of this data online and it's more accessible across the world. 
But at the same time, I like that you're mentioning how important it is to still be able to touch an actual specimen. So we need both. Yeah, uh, definitely. And having accessibility to these specimens across the world is really important, especially as many of them have been collected in countries and then brought back to the U.S. or to Europe and in order to make them accessible back to those students and and faculty working in those countries, it's really, and and NGOs, it's really important that we do digitize and have accessibility of these collections. However, uh, there's still, even with a really great image, you can go in, you can make particular measurements, but you can't take DNA (laughs) out of an image. And so having that actual preserved specimen is still very important. I guess that's an example of how collections are being used in ways that the original people who collected those specimens may never have imagined. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. So you go out, you collect a plant, you bring it back to the herbarium, and now we're finding all sorts of new ways that we can query those herbarium sheets and develop new tools and new assays to look at more comprehensive biodiversity. So another year passed. Goodbye, 2020. We are looking forward to many new scientific discoveries in 2021. And if they are local, you will hear about them here at Locally Sourced Science. This was the last show of 2020, produced by Mark Sharvari and Esther Rakusin. Intro and outro music played by Joe Lewis. Thanks to all of our great listeners, thanks to our volunteer contributors, and thanks to WRFI Community Radio for playing our show. You can download our podcasts at locallysourcescience.org or from your favorite podcast apps. Hear you all in 2021. Science out!